Shlomo, oh Shlomo. The feedback on episode 110 was fast and furious. So let's get to the heart of the matter today. Noah, Kat, Joey, and Abby Kadabi. Celebrities all around the world are spreading the good word about Judaism. And hidden in plain sight, the Israeli Arab who traded a life of hate for a life of Torah. Timur David Aklin is here. This is the Weekly Squeeze. I am your talented and lovely host, Hanala Music, coming at you with episode 111 of the Weekly Squeeze. We have so much to get to, so let's get started. We really do have so much to get to, but first, and this is crucial because I took on a very uh, heavy topic last week, and there was a lot of feedback, a lot of feedback, a lot of emotions, a lot of opinions, a lot of DMs. Voice notes, Rabbi Dolphin checked in a few times to you know, weigh in on the conversation. There's, there was a conversation in the Weekly Squeeze WhatsApp chat. Shlomo Karabach was beloved, truly beloved. And I know this because my mother grew up listening to his music and she, she loved him and she loved his music. And when I say him, it's because people really loved the man too. And that's why I felt it was important to get into this topic and share with you the conversation I had with Rabbi Dolphin. Now, I know everybody's busy, but the fact of the matter is there is a book called The Real Shlomo by Chaim Dolphin. And in it, he really, really does a beautiful job analyzing and understanding Shlomo, so much so that it's chaval that a lot of you focus on one part of the conversation instead of taking away just how powerful the message actually was. So I want to do two things. First of all, I want to make it very, very clear that abuse of children is unacceptable on any level. As a mother, as a parent, as a Jew, as a member of society, if anyone dared to take even the slightest bit of my child's innocence, that would be unforgivable. No human being has the right to be so selfish and so narcissistic and so self-involved that they don't recognize that what they're doing is hurtful. So, uh, uh, And a person who does that has to do some serious tshuva. There's no question about that. But I'm not here to be din and dayan to Shlomo Karbach, and, and neither is Rabbi Dolphin. And in our correspondence, he said, just in passing, that it's chaval that people can't read the introduction to the book. It's like crucial to understanding what this, what this is all about, okay? So this is from the introduction of The Real Shlomo. I'm just going to read a couple of short paragraphs, which make this book so wonderful. Shlomo lived a life of great color and influence, and it was a life that left many unanswered questions, even accusations. These matters bothered me, not only as a Jew, but as a human being. As a result, I began this research, seeking out the people who knew him personally, as well as those who wrote about him. This research involved interviewing family members and friends from his yeshiva days, filtered by my understanding of the world from which he came. In the process of this work, I came to realize that there was more to Shlomo's story than I initially understood. This led to a year-long exploration of his life, and it ended going into his soul. I'm just going to skip ahead a little bit. So Rabbi Dolphin says... This book is to present Shlomo as he was. I'm not a Shlomo fan, and I do not listen to his music. I must admit that before this project began, I had less respect for him. I had heard the accusations of his lack of integrity and character with regard to women, and that caused me to shy away from him. However, I now see a different, more nuanced Shlomo, one that is more genuine than might be expected. I'm still not his fan, but I do see him as an integral part of Jewish life in the 21st century. Now, this is really the message of the book. Shlomo is the epitome of an average man who is in constant struggle, wrestling the dichotomy of highs and lows. There's no such thing as being on middle ground. Rather, constant motion is the way of life. 
I see this in Shlomo and cherish his tenacity and courage as an average human being with all of life's struggles. This is why Shlomo's story is an important one to read and learn. The book was not written with the intention that one should become another Shlomo, talented musician that he was. I wrote the book because Shlomo is really all of us. We all have a bit of him within ourselves. I see him as the perpetual healthy self, the self to whom our chachamim say, our sages say, this is why you were created, to fight, to battle. Shlomo fought with all of his life. Did he win the fight? I think that he did. And now, 20 years later, his music is as common to religious services as the prayers themselves. Today, his followers, or as they call him, his chassidim, are outwardly more religious than they were during his lifetime. Shlomo's aspirations are being fulfilled. And then he wraps up, he says, if Shlomo had his preference, he most likely would not have hugged women. Today, as we celebrate his 20th year at sight, I mean, this is already a few years ago, we have an opportunity and an obligation to Shlomo's soul to stand up and say, Shlomo, we love you. And our guide is the Shlomo of the 1940s and 50s, the Shlomo who did outreach work for the Lubavitcher Rebbe and studied Talmud in Lakewood. And that's it. What can I possibly add? He wasn't black and white. He was gray and nuanced. So I hope that answers some of your um, lingering questions on why we covered that subject. And um, yeah, let's move on. Oh, and you can order the book. The link is in my show notes. All right, so much to get to. First of all, it's time to choose a winner for the Mosaic Press Book Giveaway. Mosaic Press Books Giveaway. <laughs> it's a mouthful. Uh, thank you so much, all of you, for emailing me and sending me your screenshots and for leaving reviews. Now, just because the giveaway is over does not mean you have to stop leaving me reviews. You are welcome to comment. It's extremely simple. If you are using Instagram and you are listening to this podcast, you can operate your microwave. You can leave me a review. Ta, that means you. Ma, you too. Rachla, any of my sisters, brothers, aunts, and uncles listening, you guys especially. Okay. <laughs> um, mazel tov to Mary E, who left me this cute review. I literally wait until a new episode comes out, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. I love, love, love this podcast, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Keep up the great work, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. So Mary, um, I'm going to send you four books. Thank you, Mosaic Press, for sponsoring that. Hit me up, send me a message, and I'll get those out to you ASAP. Everyone else, there is still one more prize to be won, the gorgeous brief and visual history of anti-Semitism from Israel Bitone. I believe it was episode 109 where he shared how that book came into fruition. It's fantastic. It's a winning, well, I award it, so it's a winning book, and you should be excited to win it. So leave me a review, and next week, Thursday, We'll choose a winner for that book. Okay, let's get to the juice because this is the weekly squeeze where we make juice. <laughs> Lots of celebrity news. Noah, Kat, Joey, and Abby Kadabi. What do they all have to do with each other? Well, they're all representing the Jewish people on the big screen. Now, I grew up watching Sesame Street as a little, little, little kid on PBS back in the days before Elmo. And uh, I have warm feelings towards it. Snuffleupagus and Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch. And it was Brooklyn and we, you know, we knew New York and, you know, it, that's what we watched. So it's really refreshing to see Abby Kadabi in a hijab. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's really refreshing to see that Sesame Street is celebrating Jewish American History Month. I don't know who Kat Graham is because I'm not in the scene. Like, I don't know what's flying. Apparently she's black and Jewish. And she says she's a proud Jewish American 
and she's excited to celebrate her community and heritage this month and every month. She wore a Star of David necklace for the occasion. Who is Kat Graham? Is she like a huge celebrity? Sometimes I tell my kids, like, who's this person? And they look at me like dumbfounded. How do you not know who that is? Oh, so she was in The Parent Trap, The Vampire Diaries. All right, I haven't watched any of these. Let's see. She's like a, a CW, uh, the, uh, whatever. Anyway, so she was. she's Jewish. Um, she doesn't look Jewish. She looks, well, she looks sparty, actually. She does. I, would, I wouldn't guess she's Jewish. Anyway, so she, here she is on Sesame Street with Abby Kadabi. Hi there. Abby and I are here to wish everyone a very happy, happy Jewish, Jewish American, American Heritage, Heritage Month. <laughs> As a proud Jewish American, I am so, so excited to celebrate my community and heritage this month and every month. One of my favorite traditions is... What? Yeah. You know how to make matzo ball soup? I mean, now everyone's going to ask me to make them some. Oh, well, uh, I know I am. I just <laughs> love that soup. How did you learn to make it? My grandma taught me when I was your age. Oh, that is so nice. That's what I love about family. Those kind of traditions that make you feel hugged. Yeah. <laughs> well, we hope you guys have an amazing month, and we love you so much. Mwah. Mwah. Now, can we have that soup? Yeah, let's go do it. Oh, that's so cute. I happen to love Abby Kadabi. Like, she's my favorite Sesame Street creature, Muppet, whatever she is. She's just so cute. Okay. Jewish actress Joey King gets a hummus tattoo in Israel. <laughs> oh, this reminds me of another tattoo that I saw. Um, a big black tattoo on some guy's hand that said matzah. And he said that he went to a tattoo parlor and he told them to write the word strong on his hand. And now his hand says strong. And they were like, it does not say strong. <laughs> it says Mata. <laughs> but anyways, apparently Joey King, I don't know who this is either. She came to Israel and she got herself a hummus tattoo. What does that even mean? Did she tattoo a, a container of some <laughs> hummus? No, no, she did the name. Okay, she got a tattoo for the word hummus on the nape of her neck. Wow, apparently tattoos there can be very painful. Well, the thought of a hummus tattoo on your neck... Yeah, that's painful. <laughs> but here she is on Instagram uh, saying she's having a great time in Tel Aviv and always good to have positive press from our celebrities who have decent followings on Instagram. Let's see how many followers she has. View more on Instagram. Da-da-dee-da-da-da. Joey King. 18 million followers. Psh, Kanai Nahara. Psh. 18.4.1. I just followed her. Well, maybe not. But yeah, she has a hummus tattoo. How's that for Jewish pop news? All right. The next thing that I wanted to share with you is that Anne Frank is in the news again for what appears to be a good reason and a horrific reason. The good reason is that there's a new drama coming out with Liev Schreiber and Belle Powley. I'm looking at a picture of what is Anne Frank, and they're making a film about her life. Oh, that's such a tricky subject. It seems like the world is obsessed with Anne Frank. If you would see the photos that, were, that went viral, actually, yesterday, of Anne Frank that somebody produced on AI glamorizing her life. You can't imagine. Just don't imagine. Like, just don't imagine. Like, let the girl's neshama rest in peace. People are obsessed with her and not in a good way. Unfortunately, the anti-Semites will use anything to degrade the Jewish people, even the memory of a girl who died in a Nazi concentration camp. But I guess we'll see. This film will be coming out, and people are going to watch it. It has some... Big Hollywood stars in it. And ultimately, this is a story that people gravitate to and relate to. So I guess Anne Frank will continue to be part of the narrative when we're talking about the Holocaust. Speaking about the Holocaust, that brings me to the third, fourth and final celebrity, Jewish celebrity for this segment, 
Noah Curell, the winner of Eurovision, the one who won third place with her unicorn song. Well, she certainly knows how to keep people talking about her because she was all over the news today making international headlines for saying exactly what I thought when I saw the scoreboard. Good for Poland for giving Israel their 12 points because boy, oh boy, did Poland, the Poles, treat the Jews bad during the Holocaust. And I say that as a child, a grandchild of a Holocaust survivor. I saw or I know firsthand how horrific the behavior of the Poles were when it came to the immense suffering for the Jewish people that was happening right under their noses. My grandmother went to a concentration camp and came back to a work camp. I'm sorry. My grandmother went to a labor camp, returned home, and a Polish little girl was living in her house and playing with her dolls. And she looked at her with her cold blue eyes and was like, it's all mine now, Jew girl. And that was that. They collaborated with the Nazis. They were violent against the Jews. And yes, there were Polish individuals and families that hid Jews, you know, considered the righteous amongst the nations. And they have been honored. And they have been honored. But I, I, to, to say that the Poles were lining up to help the Jews starving to death in the ghetto? No, hardly. Now, Noah Kirel is the grandchild of a Polish woman who survived the Holocaust and probably has the same recollections that my grandmother did, how horrific the Poles treated the Jewish people, and she is entitled to say her piece, especially to Israel News. I mean, she said it here to Ynet. She said, to get 12 points from Poland after almost the entire Kirel family was murdered there in the Holocaust is a great achievement. That's right. Now, Tuvia Tenenbaum, and I did a podcast episode with him, just scroll down, you'll find it. He spent time in Europe, a lot of time. He wrote an entire book about anti-Semitism in Europe, The Poles still hate the Jews, and they have no business having a temper tantrum because we called them out for their behavior. Apparently, they had a hissy fit with their undersecretary of state, Paweł Jablonski, tweeting out, quote, the fact that many people in Israel consider Poland to be a co-perpetrator of German crimes, not their victim, is often the result not so much of bad will as lack of knowledge and incomplete education, one of them being the organized trips of Israeli youth to Poland. Now, first of all, Noah Kirel didn't say that Poland collaborated with Germany on all their crimes. She just said that almost our entire family was murdered there in the Holocaust, and that's just the fact. Her relatives were murdered in Auschwitz, which was in Poland. That's just the fact of the matter. Now, Poland doesn't like this. They are obsessed with being portrayed or not being portrayed as perpetrators of the Holocaust. Apparently, Barack Obama referred to Auschwitz as a Polish death camp, and they were not thrilled. You know, nobody wants to have death camp um, attached to the name of their country. But are you kidding? 90% of Poland's pre-war 3.3 million Jews, the largest in Europe at that time, were murdered by the Nazis, okay? The Polish police collaborated with the Nazis and 200,000 Jews, 200,000 Jews, more than were here at Hakamata Medina. I mean, the number's astronomical. They were turned into the Nazis by the Polish people, including my grandparents who were moved into the Warsaw Ghetto, my great-grandparents. It was horrific. It was horrific and no apology will be enough, especially because anti-Semitism is still flourishing in Poland and all across Europe. Let's not kid ourselves. But what does Poland do? They make it about themselves. They tweet out again. Another yukul. I don't know. This went viral. No serious person in Poland denies neither the Holocaust nor the Nazi German crimes. And then they say six million of our citizens were killed and millions of others. Kind of like 
including themselves in the Holocaust. Like essentially just saying, well, six million Jews and six million Poles. No, no, no. That's not the way it is. That's not the way it was. Ask my grandmother and she'll tell you that while you Poles were moving into her house and sleeping in her bed and playing with her dolls and wearing her clothing and playing on her piano, she was in the ghetto starving because she was a Jew and you loved it. Hey, ladies, are you tired of feeling stressed, anxious and moody? Introducing Queen Tulsi's Daily Stress Relief, the all-natural supplement that will transform your life. Do you find yourself experiencing mood swings, struggling to fall asleep or to stay asleep, or dealing with PMS? It is time to say goodbye to overwhelming stress and hello to a calmer, happier you with the Queen Tulsi Supplement. Queen Tulsi is here to help you create a sense of calm, handle stress better, and boost your mood. Oh, no, that sounds good to me, but that's not all. Queen Tulsi is packed with antioxidants that give you clear and glowing skin while protecting against free radical damage and aging. It is the ultimate holistic solution. So say goodbye to daily stress and hello to a balanced life. Queen Tulsi is the only certified OU kosher blend on the market. Carefully crafted with five natural herbs that work in perfect synergy to create calm. No artificial ingredients, just pure goodness. You deserve to feel like the queen every day. So don't miss out on this exclusive offer. Use the code QUEENHANALA and order the Queen Tulsi supplement today. Are you ready to reclaim your peace of mind? Head over to my show notes for the link and start your journey to a stress-free living today. www.carolinebasshealth.com to order. All right, for those of you wondering what happened to the seal on the beach... Well, she's gone. She swam away and Israelis got back to their lives or to their not lives. <laughs> I'm looking at a picture of an Egyptian mummy in an MRI machine surrounded by Israelis. I know. I know. There's seals on the beach and there's mummies in the hospitals because Israel is fascinating and fascinating things happen here, including a planned operation that took five months to organize a pair of 2000 year old coffin lids from Egypt were transferred from the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, which I highly recommend. It's across the street from the Knesset, one of my favorite museums in Israel, and that's saying a lot, to undergo a CT scan. Oh, it's not an MRI, a CT scan on Friday. Same difference. Now, I'm not a biologist or whatever you have to be to study mummies, but apparently they needed to use this cutting-edge medical technology that was only available in Israel, despite the fact that Egypt is 100 times bigger than Israel. Well, there are certain things that you just need the Jewish cup for. Shlomi Chazan. <laughs> I gotta love it. The chief radiologist of Shari Tzedek's imaging department, Shlomi Chazan. He said that it's not every day that one witnesses the convergence of history and technological advancements in the medical field. So yeah, a bunch of people are staring at a mummy. And yeah, that's what's happening in Israel. Now, this is a very charming story. Spotify removes violent anti-Israel songs written by, guess who? The Palestinians. Now, I can tell you that the Palestinians, well, they have a thriving off-Palestine, off-Gaza, <laughs> Broadway culture going on because there are some ridiculous videos circulating on Twitter of these Arab-grown men, practically, dancing around like a bunch of little girls, waving their weapons, singing about taking over Israel. I mean, it's ridiculous. If it wasn't so scary and horrifying, it would be absolutely hilarious. Apparently, 4,000 people uh, signed a petition called We Believe in Israel, and uh, Spotify started taking off some of this 
Arab music crap, including a song called Udrub Udrub Tel Aviv, which includes the lyrics, strike a blow to Tel Aviv and frighten the Zionists. The more you build it, the more we will destroy it. Strike, oh, Qasam missile. Do not let the Zionists sleep. Even if they beg for mercy, be sure not to show Tel Aviv any mercy. Another song was called The Death of Israel. Now, that's not a good song. But if you went on Twitter, if you went on social media today, you know what you're going to see? You are going to see an absolute meltdown from the whole free Palestine community that the Jews are taking their music off Spotify. Like clueless. These people, they don't even recognize how deplorable their culture has become. They don't even recognize how low they've fallen that their publicity comes only from their hatred and their murderous zeal to destroy Israel. There's nothing else that they're, they're known for. I mean, think about the things that Israel has accomplished in the last 70 years. If you are using a smartphone, you are using Israeli technology. Waze, hello? They invented Waze. Like, that's enough. If they just invented Waze... We'd be grateful for Israel. The Iron Dome, one of a kind. Did you know the USB flash drive? I didn't know this. Oh, no way. I just hopped. I thought it was disc on key. It's a disc on key. Invented in 1999, a disc on key. Huh. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. So the USB flash drive, the Rewalk Esco Skeleton. I don't know what that is. If you're a scientist and you're listening and you know what that is, Israel invented it. The Pilcam. I did not know that either. You can swallow a pill now with a camera inside for non-invasive visualizations of the digestive system. My neighbor downstairs did this. I think I just exposed to the entire world that she had a colonoscopy. <laughs> uh, but there was a camera involved. Anyway, cherry tomatoes, um, that's a big one. Solar water heating, hello. Instant messaging. Remember instant messaging in the late 1990s? Yeah, Israel invented that. It really, the list goes on and on. So for the Palestinians to be making a whole grouchka that their terror song was taken off Spotify is so mental. There's no, there's no shame. There is no shame. Yeah. And apparently the song Udrub Udrub Tel Aviv is so, is so popular <laughs> that even Israelis sing it. My husband once showed me this song. It went viral in Israel because of its ridiculousness. But anyways, it's not available anymore except on YouTube. And if you want to hear some horrible music, I mean, I have no issue with Middle Eastern music, but just this particular genre is not my style. Palestinian terrorist pop. Not my style. That's right. All right. My next guest is a young man named Timur David Aklin. He's an Israeli Arab from Yafo, born to a Muslim family, converted to Judaism. And uh, he's here today to share all the things that go through your mind, go through your heart, go through your soul. When you make the transition from an Arab Muslim to an Israeli Jew, it's a very, very powerful story. And honestly, I still have to give it some more thought. I really just I haven't even digested how powerful some of those moments were you know, during our conversation. Timur is an incredible guy, and the odds are not in his favor. He has a lot of enemies including, and I'm going to share a clip now with a little warning that th this could be dis disturbing. This is what it sounds like when the Arabs hit the streets all around the UK and debate and yell and, and degrade Israel with all their lies and all their hate. And this is what it sounds like. And here is a clip of Timur, an Arab, now a Jew, standing with his Israeli flag, taking the threats, the abuse, the hate from the Arabs. And we get into a conversation about what makes the Arabs tick, 
literally like why they blow themselves up. And it was just such an interesting conversation. It just really was something really special. So first I'm going to share that clip. Uh, I'm warning you now it's disturbing. So if you have children around, maybe send them out of the room or play it later. It's almost two minutes long. And then uh, we'll get right into the interview with Timur David Aklin, Hidden in Plain Sight. For as long as the Israeli settler colony continues to exist, Israel has no right to exist. If you're the big man, you'll fold that up and you'll put that in your pocket. If you want to remain here and you're actually coming for a message, be the bigger man. But why is such a provocative because thing? It's a nasty, it's, it's a a piece a nasty of government. It's a dirty government that deserves to go to Jahannam. If it, as long as the state of Israel exists. Yeah, It's up to you. Yeah. I used to be a gang member. Yeah, I used uh, to carry red flags. This just attacked me. Let's pat on my... Jews are chosen by God and nobody can defeat them. Arab leader has said that there will never be peace in the Middle East as long as you're a terrorist state. Are you? Country, Britain. But he's Arab, yeah? I'm an Arab, right? I'm an Arab Jew. I'm an Arab Jew. And so... They did that on the fire and fireworks. No, it's not us. It's not I mean, they're, they're, they're flipping the bird at us. So I... Timor David, welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. Thank you so much for being here. What a treat. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate you. My pleasure. I want to start off with a joke, okay? Go for it. Just to lighten the mood. Uh, so there's a, a joke about a man standing on trial for the murder of his own parents. After he's unequivocally proven guilty, the judge turns to him and asks, do you have anything to say in your defense? The defendant replies... Please show me leniency. You don't understand. I was just orphaned from both of my parents. <laughs> this is the tragic reality of the Arab mentality, wouldn't you say? I, I would say it's 100% uh, accurate. CNN reported yesterday there are nearly 2 billion Muslims in the world. Of course, because they're CNN, they feel that they're misunderstood and there's Islamophobia and we have violence against Muslims. But that's not the conversation we are having today. Today we're having a completely different conversation and I am excited to jump right in. So for my listeners, you grew up in Jaffa, Israel. You're an Israeli. Um, from what I've discovered, you had a difficult childhood. Your parents were divorced. As a teenager, you went to travel a little bit. So tell us about those years and what you learned about yourself and the Arabs and the Jews and the world at large when you first were able to leave Israel and see the world. I'll try to make it as brief as possible, even though I have like a really long history, even though I'm just 29. Uh, I was born and raised here in Yafo, as you said. I went to a um, Greek uh, Christian Orthodox school until fourth grade. And then I went to a Christian school. It was uh, St. Michael's Greek Orthodox school. It was also kind of like a Palestinian school because our principal was very patriotic towards Palestine. And most of the education we received was pro-Palestine and anti-Israel. Uh, but it wasn't unusual because, like, it was basically, it was a status quo. It was like that everywhere. But our school, like, really stood out because she was using art to make us fall in love with the, uh, the Palestinian idea, even though she was a Christian. And on eighth grade, around eighth grade, I moved to a Muslim school 
Uh, it was a community school, but like 95% of us were Muslims, below 5% uh, Christians and Jews. Jews, not Jews. Jews. And uh, yes, mm -hmm. right, Arabic-speaking Jews. And then basically, it was very confusing for me because at the same time, I didn't really have parents growing up. Uh, my mother, uh, she was never... She was never really there for me. Uh, I never met my father, never. Um, he killed himself when I was younger. School was confusing for me because, you know, I had my own uh, soul searching to do. <laughs> and at the same time, you know, I was kind of involved in politics. It's just I wasn't really, we all are. You know, there's politics everywhere. We, we can't escape politics. So, Especially in Israel where it's... It's always it, heated. It, yeah, we all have so much skin in the game. Right. So imagine every time we something was going on, like a flotilla from Turkey to Gaza. And now, you know, there's like an outrage and people are just sharing uh, misinformation and just propaganda. And they're just doing that because, you know, they want to keep us angry and they want us to react one way or another. In a certain place, they were kind of using the young people because they thought if they could do something, they would be able to get them you know, get them out of trouble, you know, they, they could get away with it. So, you know, most people, whenever they throw rocks on Jews, whenever they engage in any violent act, they feel like because they're young, they can just get away with it because we have lawyers and they protect them and it happens all the time. But I, I, one thing that I do remember that kind of, you know, shifted things for me was when Gilad Shalit was kidnapped. I don't know if mm -hmm. you, yeah. So when he was kidnapped, uh, we had uh, school teachers who were celebrating. Uh, we had, uh, you know, it was just like, it was joy. It was it's like... such a bizarre reality, though, because you were Israeli citizen. Like, in what other country in the world do children learn to despise the country they live in? Well, I mean, from the day you're born, you're being told things like the Jews killed you and stole from you. And they did, you know, they tell you about all these things, but but they're just stories. Like, we don't experience them, right? But they're trying to remind you of things you can't really see or see any proof of. But that's what people cling on to. It's so unsettling for a child. It's so unhealthy to grow up um, and, and feel sure. like you, you don't have that advantage, that you're not on equal playing field as, as everybody else. It could really mess with your psyche. <laughs> You can. My grandmother, she was, uh, her sister was married to Yasser Arafat's uh, right-hand man. Uh, so basically she was a secretary for the PLO. When we were young, when I was young, uh, I didn't really know much about it, but we would visit Gaza sometimes. And I didn't really know much about what was going on, the conflict. I remember soldiers, I remember tanks just patrolling in Gaza. It was uh, in the mid-90s, 96, no, it was like 98 98, 99, I believe. I was five, six years old. I was, I was born in 93. So I met Arafat as well, but I, I never really know anything about him. You know, it's really strange. But the day I left Israel when I was 17 and I decided I want to leave, like I felt like this is my place. I don't belong here. I don't want to be here. I don't want to. I just don't feel any connection to this place. I'm like, it's so complicated here. So why be here? So I left, I traveled the world. Well, actually I had some death threats from uh, family members as well, because I was, I, I was quite sassy, especially on social media. And I would, uh, I would spew anti-Arab Facebook posts and statuses. I wasn't very much, I wasn't like a pro-Israel guy as much as I was anti-Arab because I was just criticizing everything in the community and people didn't like it. So they're like, oh, are the Jews better than us? I'm like, oh, I think they are. <laughs> but they Well, you describe, like I, I've watched some of your YouTube videos where you describe overhearing Arabic conversations because you know the language all across Europe and the tone and the tenor 
of the discourse is just so appalling and unappealing. And I think that really turned you off from the Arab culture as a whole. Right. Because I remember when I was living in Canada for a couple of years, and I just fell in love with everyone because, like, the manners were there, and everyone was so civil and polite. And you know, I was Canada. just like, why, "Why can't everyone be like Canada?" You know. I lived in Montreal. Everybody is very polite, but the truth is, there are a lot of Arabs there now, yeah, for sure. There are. There are. I, I've I've met some crazy Arabs over there too. A taxi driver. I think I mentioned him in one of my videos. Uh, I met other Arabs who worked at like factories and stuff, warehouses when I was working. And while I was working, I would talk to them and they would hate the sound of the word Israel. Like, what do you call that Israel? Call that Palestine. It's Palestine. It's Palestine. I want to talk about the difference between Islam and being an Arab, because they are two different things. If you if you go back to the to the history of the Jewish people and, and to the relationship that Yishmael had with Yitzchak, okay? Yishmael was not a Muslim. No. Ishmael. He was he was an Arab, yeah. right? In, in in Israel, Jews often call the Arabs cousins because as Arabs, they are our cousins. They're not our cousins because they're Muslims, right? We don't call a, a person who converts to Islam our family, but the Arabs, we go way back. We have the same forefather. So I think that's the reason I don't have a serious issue with the Arabs in general as much as I do with the Palestinians, which we will get into. I just believe that our conflict with the Arabs is a family issue. It doesn't mean that it's not terrible because I have family members that haven't spoken for years and are at each other's throats. It doesn't mean that it can't be terrible. But I think we could potentially reconcile with our cousins, the Arabs, and then let the rest of the Muslim world decide, you know, how they want to relate to that. And that's why I'm having this conversation. But you might convince me otherwise. So, you know, let's dig in. So you, you're out in the world you're learning more about the Arab people, but this is who you are. Isn't it like a natural inclination just to align yourselves? Like if you can't beat them, join them? Well, I don't think I'm trying to change anyone's uh, opinion or mind about anything. I'm just sharing, I'm sharing my story. And if anyone finds it intriguing enough to agree with me, then that's fine by me. But, but it's not my goal. Uh, even when I went to London just uh, over a month ago, and I went to, well, I, I didn't plan to protest or anything. It just happened to be that way. I was uh, at Speaker's Corner. And while I was there, I got attacked by a group of uh, Arabs, uh, Lebanese, Syrians. Uh, most of them were Shias, but it doesn't really matter. Physically attacked? Uh, actually, yeah, the, my camera was slightly damaged. They spat on me, spat on my flag. Did they know you were originally an Arab or, yeah. or was it just because they did know? Yeah, because they approached me and they asked and it's all on video. Like I said, hello. And they were like, why are you with that flag? You should be ashamed of that flag. One of them was actually Jewish who said this at first, but he was like, it was like a diaspora Jew. Like he's never been to Israel, whatever. But he told me I'm a Jew. I'm a Mizrahi Jew. He wanted to show me on his phone that he was. He told me, don't carry that flag. And I'm like, I'm, I'm proud of that flag. You know, it's a shame that you're not. Maybe you should do some research. <laughs> They, they, their minds must have been blown. It's like they probably didn't know what to do with you or yeah. even what to say to you besides, I'm assuming, traitor, how could you? Zionist terrorist. You're a Zionist terrorist. <laughs> how did yeah. it make you feel? At, at first, it made me laugh because I didn't realize it was actually happening. I was like, are they actually doing it in London? Like, we're London. Where, where are the police? I thought the police was here a minute ago. Police just disappeared, vanished. They were at the coronation. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, it lasted for about 25, 30 minutes. It's all, it was all on my phone because I was recording the whole time because my cameras and everything, I was too scared for my gear. I have really expensive uh, equipment. And then Joseph Cohen showed up. He's also like a guy who makes videos. Uh, the red beard? Exactly. 
Oh, he's amazing. Yeah. So he showed up towards the end and then that's how we connected. He has guts. He has guts, yeah. that man. Yeah, yeah. He takes it. Yeah. I wanted to go back to the question you asked me, but I, I kind of like, I, I lost myself there. It's just so hard for me to imagine that you felt like I'm an Arab, but I don't want to be associated with the Arabs. I take great inspiration uh, from greater Arabs like Ibn Khaldun and Ibn Taymiyyah, even though they were Muslims. At the same time, Islam is like Arab imperialism, right? And they, they just spread across the continent, you know, for 1300 years. And their plan was to conquer the entire world, if you think about it. Even uh, when Muhammad spoke to the fake prophet uh, Musaylima, who, who also brought like an amazing Quran, like he brought to the Arab people, he managed to gather like 40,000 uh, believers. And he basically believed in almost everything Muhammad believed in, but he had like a different book. And he told him like, I am your partner, like God sent me to help you. And uh, so it was like from Musaylima, messenger of God, to Muhammad, messenger of God, salutations to you. So Muhammad would start the letter like this, from Muhammad, the messenger of God to Musaylima, the arch liar. <laughs> he would attack him like this all the time. And then Musaylima actually brought a better Quran uh, because I I would I would listen to um, lecturers like Ahmad al-Kabanji. He teaches in universities in Tunis, uh, Tunisia, Tunis, and in Iraq sometimes. Like he's been traveling the world and he does, he kind of does like his own husbara about Islam and the Arab culture. And when I was learning from Ibn Khaldun, Ibn Taymiyyah, and the likes of this guy, Ahmad al-Kabanji, like it all clicked because they had better Arabic than mine. And like he was an actual professional and he would critique the Quran the way it's written. Like this is not grammatically correct, but no one would say this because they would lose the connection. They would lose the attachment, the thing that attaches their head to their torso. You know, the so you're saying there wasn't, there wasn't intellectual discussion going on about the Arab culture that you had access to some sort of support, some sort of understanding. You're not None. the first or last Arab to say, hey, we need some you know, reformation here. We need to uh, have a conversation <laughs> about our people and our youth and what's happening here and the radical radicalization and all the issues that our communities are facing as we get deeper and deeper into this warped mindset that there's only one way and that's Islam. You were talking about London. You know, Jonathan Sachs, I'm a big fan of his. He tried so hard. He really reached out to Muslim youth and try to figure out, like, what is their issue? They're not living in poverty. They could go to university. They had professions. But it just wasn't enough because in Europe, the whole mentality is that you have to abolish identity. Everything has to be completely neutral, gender neutral, re no religion. And, I, and that doesn't work for the Arab community. The secularization of Western society... It, it creates a space for all these young people to fill with all these ideas. And they're drawn to ideas that are very dangerous. They, they're drawn to causes that are very dangerous. But tell me why. Why is it that the Arabs gravitate towards violence and force? Is this something that could be fixed? Or do you believe it's 100% completely genetic and we just have to deal with it as it is? It's definitely not genetic. I think I'm the proof for that. It's definitely a uh, cultural thing. It's a culture that has been passing down it's been passed down for thousands of years and it's not going to stop overnight i believe there is some progress but the progress is just so slow it is extremely slow it will take like maybe a thousand years more <laughs> of ai and just like a lot of hollywood brainwashing for these people to get better but even then like it's still going to be there 
you know, there was a, an experiment where they wanted to see if dogs actually do come from wolves. So they bred the, the most docile of the pack. And then those um, litters produced more docile wolves and so on and so forth. So when you're saying a thousand years, it would take a thousand years of this constant rehabilitation till we got to a point that it was like an almost an inborn nature to be, you know, pro-peace and all that jazz, which we'll get into. I agree. So you're in Europe and you're traveling and you're finding yourself. But let's talk about the jump from being an Arab Israeli to being a Jewish Israeli. What did you fall in love with first, Israel or Judaism? Judaism. I, Judaism. I, I fell in love with Judaism first because uh, I was raised to be religious. And when I found Judaism, it was just, it, it was beautiful. It was, uh, it was like the most beautiful experience I ever felt in my life. Um, Israel, I didn't have anything against the state. I wasn't like anti-Israel as much as I was anti-Arab. And of course, like I didn't understand what was going on. So I don't feel like I was mature enough to actually form a proper unbiased opinion because I was obviously impacted by some things that, you know, I can't really point to, you know, you're just raised in a certain way you're raised and, you know, they're making fun of Jews or they're throwing comments or you go to school and it's happening all the time. So you're shaped in a certain way that it doesn't matter what you say. It's just, it's how he came to be, you know, you go to school and you hear all these crazy things about Zionists and all that stuff. And like, I remember when I was 17, 18, I was like, where are the Zionists? <laughs> I'm looking for them. I didn't where know. Where are these yeah, mythical where, where, where creatures? Where are they? And I'm in Tel Aviv, right? <laughs> like I'm supposed to see them, but no. Um, what do the Arabs think? What do the Arabs think about the Torah? Like, what do they? I know what they say about the Jews. What do they say about the actual Torah? Is there respect because the Quran came after the Torah? Right. There is like a tiny bit of respect, but it's very, very. Um, it's not even felt really they disrespect the Torah because according to them it was corrupted by the Jews like it doesn't matter what you say to them if you're a Jew for them like you're a liar but there's an actual um doctor his name is Dr. Ahmed Didat he passed away in the 90s he had like 100 million followers Muslims he teaches Islam and he said like never argue with a Jew you know it's something that was passed on to us never argue with a Jew because if you argue with a Jew the Jew God gave him the brains he may, he gave him the smarts he will trick you so manipulate never you, yeah. uh, he will trick you and manipulate you so never talk to them so uh, it's, it's you see that you feel this all the time it's uh, it's constantly coming from every direction right and it's just non-stop a steady drip of anti-israel anti-jewish propaganda it, it, it's funny because it reminds me of that thing that ramban said he said there's mala and chisaron so basically it means there's like an advantage and a disadvantage about the muslims and the christians so the advantage with the muslims is that they believe in one god like we do the disadvantage is that we can't talk to them because they will never listen now we have the Christians. The disadvantage is that they believe in more than one God and they're idol worshippers. But the advantage is we can actually talk to them and they do listen. So interesting. Yeah. But 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 what but what we we're not proselytizing. We're not looking to convert Christians or Arabs for that matter. So it doesn't right. really matter. Right. We're trying to live peacefully side by side potentially. And I see with the Abram Accords that there is a possibility for that. I, I spoke to the the head rabbi, the head shliach in the Arab Emirates, Rabbi Duchman, Levi Duchman. And he said that the Arabs are his brothers and that he feels completely at home. Uh, you're making faces. We'll talk about it in a minute. But um, he'll tell you that peace is 100% possible. I have to say as an Israeli now living here five years, I don't know how. I, I just don't know how. The Palestinian problem, it's really overwhelming. 
It's an Arab problem. Uh, it's a Palestinian problem because people like to put a plaster on it and they don't want to like perform surgery. But we need to operate and we need to address the real issues and it's the arab culture it's not just the palestinian culture we we also kind of like uh, when i say we i'm talking about like uh, israeli arabs or arabs in general we kind of like cornered the palestinians and we kind of treated them like animals as well i think uh, i've felt it myself uh, when i would travel to the territories and i would see how israeli arabs would um treat palestinians like in a very derogatory way and it's just like it's very demeaning belittling uh, just treating them as inferior you know because they don't have the ability to travel like israeli arabs do they don't make the type of money so they go there with their uh, fancy cars and they kind of like abuse them um i think you know most arabs believe in this following sentence Allah may god never allow an arab man to rule over another arab man and it's something that Arabs in the territories say all the time. Many Arabs in the territories, I think, would be totally okay with Israel. I think the vast majority would be totally fine with Israel, even if they don't have the right to vote, if we just get rid of the Palestinian Authority. If we were able to give the Arabs a better life and just have them make more money and just better economy all in general, without having uh, the Palestinian Authority destroy everything, then... Uh, it's possible that we could have peace with them but at the same there's potential but at the same time you will always have like some groups of arabs who want to keep this going because they're making a lot of money think about like think about the hundreds you know hundreds of millions of dollars that they receive in donations all the time you know and then they're they're taking all that money like the people aren't seeing a penny for one shekel a kid will chase you like please please i'll do anything give me the shekel oh if you go on twitter you could see the videos of some of the of the homes and the properties that the leaders are, are building and clearly they have access to fluid cash you know, I had Rudy Rockman on the show. I know you know him. He's a pacifist. He believes that the responsibility of resolving the conflict weighs entirely on Israel's shoulders. No. And that only through nonviolent effort and conversation can Israeli youth and Palestinian youth see eye to eye. I don't agree. No. I think we are way past that. I don't think, like you said, they don't even want to have the conversation. And I think he is projecting <laughs> based on the kind of person that he is. Right. Um, but, but at the same time, I feel bad when I know that innocent people are suffering. I don't have an issue with, with you know, Palestinian men and women who just want simple, normal lives. The, the entire population has been indoctrinated politically sure. and spiritually to do evil. So, so what do we do? Sure. We have to defend ourselves. It's a very, very unpleasant space to be in. For sure, for sure. We have to defend ourselves from those who attack, from those who kill, from those who plan to go out and kill. It's inevitable. Like I said, we're all, we need the army. I'm not saying, hey, let's extract the army. We don't need it there anymore. Everything's going to be fine. Let's just give them money and build them some factories and give them some nice places to work at. No, it doesn't work like that. Unfortunately, because Israel, I think, Israel is scared that the world is going to judge it if it actually goes in there and does what it needs to be done. It's not doing it. It goes back and forth. I think Israel tries to find the perfect balance. They try to toe the line. But on the other hand, many times they just, like like we saw last week, they just go in and take care of business. But you're saying it's not enough. No, no. We need, like, we need military action. And when I say that, I'm not referring to, like, them just going somewhere to take out some terrorists because it's not enough they will be replaced there are always there's always going to be a replacement someone else will come sure. another one mm -hmm. like we're always seeing on the news an isis leader killed 
And then like six months later, ISIS leader killed. How many leaders are there? You know, the, the, it's the same brand, same idea, face changes, the name changes, but it, it's not enough. I think also the young generation of Arabs are more fanatical and more zealous about religion and independence than all the sheiks from all the previous generations. For sure. You know, the younger they are, the more zealous they are. And they're not really interested in, you know, they, they, they can't be bought. This is not this for them. This is for Allah. This is self-sacrifice. And, and for themselves. And for themselves, because like they're getting fame. Now we're living in the era of social media. They're going to be famous. Everyone's going to share their videos, their pictures. They're going to be heroes. You know, they're going to be commemorated forever. So for them, it's like it's a win-win situation. And they don't know much when they're 15. They're they're they, they do it. 13, 14, 15 years, they will carry guns, they will go out and try to kill Jews, shoot Jews. It, it happens all the time. But imagine like the day you're born. You're taught to be a shaheed. That's it. Like you're being breastfed hatred towards Jews. Mm. And so sad. It's it's inevitable. It it's it will happen. You're doomed. Very few have managed to escape. I remember there was like a um a 10-year-old or an eleven-year-old uh, terrorist that had like a suicide vest on himself and he was going near a checkpoint. That was so many years ago. And he was crying from afar, and the soldiers realized. So they helped him take the vest off, and then, like, he actually, he he wasn't sent back. He was taken to Israel, and he was raised in Israel. And when he turned like twenty something, there was a documentary about him. So that, I think the situation happened like twenty years ago, and now he's probably in his thirties, uh, mid thirties. And he said, like, I can't believe I would do that. Like, how did they make me do that? I don't understand. Like when so, you step out of it, it's just astounding. I want to ask you, though, about your conversion, because through in Judaism, you are a Jew through your mother, but in Islam, you are an Arab through your father. You can't convert to Judaism, so you will never be considered a Jew amongst the Arabs. Well, it's true that among the Arabs, I may not be a Jew for them, because they will look at me and see an Arab, but at the same time, they do see me as a renegade, and they see me as a traitor, they see me as a... Uh, an obstacle. Uh, they see me like they perceive me as a threat to their dawa, you know, the, which is like their call to convert others. You know, I think during the past, I don't know, I, I don't really recall Jesus stuff in Islam ever growing up. I never heard of him, never seen him. I just know Jesus, son of Mary, sister of Moses and Aaron, which is funny. Like, sister of Moses. <laughs> yes, yes. That's how it is. It's That's how she's uh, describing Islam, by the way. Mary, mother of Jesus, sister of Moses and Aaron. Also, did you know that Haman in the Quran was in Egypt? <laughs> you know, they, they just messed it not up. Not in Persia? No, not in Persia. And I want to get into that because one of the big issues, I think, with the Muslim mentality and I hate to say it, and every time I say it, I get slammed, but I'm going to say it anyway because my husband's a Sephardic Jew which means that he's half an Arab. <laughs> I mean, all, I mean oh, it depends, just, you know, not he all. He knows the mentality. He knows okay. the mentality. He feels comfortable. Obviously, he's dark-skinned, M- Middle Eastern. He gravitates towards the culture. You know, he likes the respect and he likes the food. There's something there, more than me. I'm just a white, freckle-faced Ashkenazi girl from Miami. <laughs> so, you know, let's take, let, for example, Mahmoud Abbas. He spoke, uh, you know, recently, I think it was in the U.N., Literally one lie after the, after the other. I mean, the the litany of lies that he's come up with. I mean, with the Holocaust, I remember. Yeah, yeah, and it's also like 
it, my question is, are they deliberately lying or has he actually convinced himself that it's true because it helps him look like a protector of Islam and a, a defender of Islam? Is it, par- is it both? A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a combination. But I think uh, 70% he knows he's lying. Yeah. He knows he's lying for sure. He doesn't care because he's seen other politicians lie. So it's like, all right, if they lie all the time, I'll lie too. Um, he's obviously lying. 95 to 99% of what Palestinians and pro-Palestinian activists say is a lie. They they don't care about the truth. They just sit there and they're waiting to provoke some sort of you know a reaction out of people. Well, if you throw enough things against the wall, it sticks. Something sticks. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about what happened the first time you learned Torah, when you finally like had access to it and you started to learn it with like great earnest. I had moments where I felt like I was touched by God. It was I I couldn't really convince myself otherwise. I, w- I would like literally gamble with myself. I would ask for stuff and I'm like, can I receive it? I'm not going to ask for something big because then it's too big. It's greedy. I don't want to, you know, j- just give me this little thing. Give me a sign. And then it would happen in like the most, it's, you know, it, it's it's hard to even put it into words because the things I've experienced were just so surreal. Um, at the same time, it also came from my desire to um, research and investigate uh, Islam and the characters of Islam. And I wanted to be truthful uh, with the entire process. And the Talmud, I understand there's like a lot of things that are difficult, are difficult in the Talmud. But you have to understand that they were written at a time where the Jews were persecuted from left, right, above, below, beyond, and you know, it was just, it was, it was beyond measure. So it was basically a manual book to get by. How do you survive in this cruel mm-hmm. world? It wasn't like written there to Listen, oppress. Self-defense anyone. is not pretty. Self-defense is no. very ugly and unpleasant. And, and we For don't sure. want to engage in it. But unfortunately, it just became a way of life. For sure. I think the Torah is beautiful. There's only one thing I don't understand in the Torah. And I've tried to look for answers. And it, I, I still... <laughs> and, uh, I'll take a stab at it. I'll try. No, it's it's a question that I... Uh, because I, I used to go after Jews. You know, I'm not trying to convert anyone, right? But I would go after Jews who are anti-Torah and try to like like make it a bit mild, you know, just make it a bit like season it a little bit, make it attractive with, you know, for them when I was talking to them and stuff, but they would attack me with certain stuff. You know, for example, like you will not eat uh, meat in uh, like the milk of its mother, right? That's where Mm -hmm. the kosher rule comes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So um, they're like, this is a metaphor. Like, don't be cruel. Don't kill the animal and then, like, dip it in its own milk. That's what it's about. And you know what? What if I wanted chi- uh, chicken burger, you know, right? I'm just taking chicken and milk. So why? why? So they were asking me questions like this that I would have no answers to. Well, there's the Torah Shabbat Peh. I mean, there's the, the Shulchan Aruch. This is... Right. You need a... You need a- comprehensive Jewish education in order to keep the 613 mitzvot correctly. For sure. Yeah, Judaism is not something you can sign up for unless you're committed to make the time to learn and understand. And you ne- it never ends. Right. You, it literally, we learn the, the Chumash every single year, over and over. Every week. Yeah, every week. And we go over it and I think, how do we still have what to talk about? How does my husband still have a Dvar Torah? How are we still excited to jump and delve into this? Because it's just a vast, deep never-ending river of holiness and, and 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 beauty and it's always relevant like something is happening right now and the parasha would be relevant to what's happening the quran didn't feel alive to you no not at all the quran is just like um a musical 
<laughs> it was uh, written in a poetic way. Um, it rhymes a lot. Almost every verse would end with a rhyme. Vakafira, vakabila, wa'amila, wa'in, wa'in, wa'in. So it's like, uh, that's what Muhammad did, because at the time people weren't reading books, right? So when Muhammad came, he would just like recite to them. All the uh, non-believers, the idol worshippers, the, they all were, were worshipping statues and stuff like that. He would stand there on the podium, kind of like speaker's corner. And, you know, Muhammad was probably the best speaker because <laughs> he would just like sing to them. And would sing, and people would cry. That's like the description. Arabic is a very poetic language. It's yeah. a beautiful language. And they would cry, and be, and we'd be very convincing. You know, he wasn't able right. to convince the Jews, though. <laughs> well, in general, the Arab mentality is very much relies on on the emotions and hopes and fears of the people. You know, they don't value objectivity as much. They interpret things based on what they believe, even if it means avoiding the uncomfortable truths. You know, that the, their priority is their desires, how, mm-hmm. how we could fit this into our narrative. And, and we see that over and over. And it's very, very hard to have a conversation with people who cannot be objective. But back to your conversion. I know people listening are, are curious. Who converted you and what was their reaction when you presented your story and said, I want to be part of the Jewish people? Like, how did you find a support group? Because you do, you do need a support group to convert. So tell us a little bit about that story. So in 2019, that was my first attempt to, at, you know, at actually converting through like the rabbinate, going through the official process. Uh, before that, I thought it was enough that I was learning for myself. And the covenant is between me and Hashem. And I know the Torah is the truth. I don't need to be a Jew. You know, that's how and I thought. you have a Brit already. <laughs> yeah, right. I had it when I was eight days old. <laughs> so in 2019, I remember I reached out to the first organization that I found. I wasn't really sure about it. I was a bit skeptical. Uh, I was paranoid. What, what would they think? What would they say? So I kind of like I disappeared on them and I stopped answering the phone. And then after some time, towards the end of the year, I was like, okay, man up, man up. <laughs> it's just a phone call. You know, just get it done just give him a call and i called and i remember i spoke uh, to a lady who said someone will call me back about his class you know that they have a couple teachers available right now there's shira and adiel and i said okay and then uh adiel calls me back and he goes uh, yes where are you from where were you born where this is like born here you're born here you know like he was kind of confused because he thought like i was born in a different country and that like my parents are maybe like my father's jewish or my mother isn't something like that because most people who convert uh, at least the ones that i've come across they usually have like a, a jewish father the mother is not Jewish, and sometimes they come from different countries, so they feel like they want to belong, so they do the process here and not abroad. So I told him, uh, yeah, I come from a Muslim household, one, two, three. He went quiet for like five seconds. He said, okay, uh, Monday, 6 p.m. So he just didn't talk afterwards. And he never really mentioned uh, like any of this, which I appreciated for a very long time because I was always traumatized by, you know, being an Arab and a Muslim and stuff. I always hid my identity whenever I was with people at work, whatever. Like it's irrelevant, like because if you're trying, like Islam is not a cultural centerpiece in my life. It's not like it's not part of my identity. And being an Arab, you know, I don't really have any of the Arab mentality and I don't carry any of the Arab culture. So why should I ident- identify as one of 
these people, if all you're going to do is like make assumptions afterwards, right? So right. We, and we I just want to point out to people listening that you're wearing a big white kippa, you're wearing your tzitzit over yeah. your shirt. So clearly you're comfortable identifying as a Jew yeah. today. Very comfortable. Yeah. And I live in a predominantly uh, Arab neighborhood. Uh, all of my neighbors, all of my you neighbors still live in are... Jaffa? Yeah, I still live where I was born and raised and grew up. Wow. Yeah. So I reached out to uh, the second organization, which was Native. Oh, I just mentioned Shira Nadiel. I went back uh, and I started uh, studying six hours a week. I did that for like a year. And then I was supposed to go to a Beddin. And now I was scared again. You know, I was getting cold feet. And I'm like, I, I, and I was just, I, I, I don't want to go. <laughs> but like, are you ready? Like, we think you're ready. You should go for it. And then... I dragged it on for like six to eight more months. And then I did that again. And like I was disappearing here and there. And then I was like, okay, I'm ready. Eventually I went there. I was like, it's time. I feel ready. And you learned all the halachas and you understood that you had to put on tefillin and keep Shabbat and keep kosher and, and the, the whole thing. You understood exactly what it involved. Yeah. I, I was learning every single day. I was obsessed with it. I was obsessed with uh, reading reading, uh, singing. Um, I wanted to learn the prayers by heart. I wanted to recite them because it was, uh, it's just, a, listen, during the, uh, during the temple uh, era, when the temple was around, people didn't have uh, a sidur. You know, the right. all, there were only karbanot, right? Right. And music. And music and karbanot and everything. And after the destruction of the uh, second temple, uh, th there, was, there was no sidur for a bit. Uh, the first original, most authentic siddur we can think of is the Yemenite one. It's the most ancient one. Mm -hmm. But I, but even back then, at the same time, people would pray without the siddur because they would just remember the entire prayer bar, by heart because all they did all the time was pray. So they were praying and praying and praying. I was like, okay, I wanted to be like those people. And I fell in love with the Yemenite culture, uh, the Yemenite, the Jewish Yemenite culture. And I learned to recite uh, most prayers by heart um, the way Yemenites do, with the pronunciation and everything. With the jimmel, with the ja? <laughs> it's, uh, it's ja, it's sa, it's ka, it's o, it's to. <laughs> so yeah, it's, I not, it's nothing like the Hebrew from Williamsburg. How did you even learn Hebrew? Like, was that a challenge? No, not at all. I uh, was born and raised here. My Hebrew was very good when I was a kid. The kids in, in, in the government schools, they, they have to learn Hebrew? Yes, they have to, but it's usually not very good. Unless they're like from the center and they go to like a Jewish school. So at the same time, they have to. But if they're more secular. Exactly. But at the same time, uh, you know, my Hebrew was very decent uh, because I studied Torah as a kid as well. My mother sent me to like an after-school program where we would learn Tanakh. So I had like a different level of respect for the book as a kid because I, I had one myself. So while other kids or other people in general like were anti-Torah, anti-Tanakh, anti-Judaism in general, I had like a lot of respect for the book because it was like my book at the same time. So I had some sort of an attachment to it. That's uh, amazing. Maybe it paid off. Were there were there different things that you gravitated to? Like you were more inclined to learn this or that? Yeah. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. 
so uh, Rashbi. The Zohar. Yes, the Zohar was my book uh, to this day. I, I love the Zohar. I Whenever I read the Zohar or pray any of the prayers, I pray the Zohar prayer, which is Patah Eliyahu. I know it by heart and I sing it every single day when I'm driving, when I go to work. It's I think it's the most beautiful prayer in the world. I, I, I kind of feel bad for Ashkenazim because they don't uh, pray Patah Eliyahu. Uh, I don't know if you know that, but it's not in their Sidur. So, but it's only Sephardim, um, Mizrahim, Yemenites, they, they're the only ones who have it. And it's, it's it's a beautiful book. And this prayer is just, it's so rich. It opens up your soul. Like, if especially if you know Aramaic. If you are, like, fluent in Arabic and fluent in Hebrew, it's so easy for you to learn Aramaic. Because every second or third word is like a combination of Arabic and Hebrew together. It's amazing. Uh, you have this natural advantage. Yeah. That's terrific. That's terrific. You're learning the Torah. You're learning the Halacha. You're falling in love with it. It's speaking to you. It's speaking to your neshama. It's waking up something inside of you. You're ready to convert. You go to the um, Bedin. Do they push you off? You know, I've heard many horror stories from converts. I've spoken to converts on my podcast that are still not converted. Mm. How did they know that you were legit? Maybe you're a spy. (laughs) Maybe you're a double agent. (laughs) I think uh, they heard my Kriyat Shema. And they began just smiling at each other. And they uh, heard me bless, because they asked me, like, bless on food. And I was like, okay, so you have to say the blessing before and the blessing that is after, right? And then I was like, okay, I'll pick my favorite. And my favorite is actually the longest, which is Hamotzi and Berkat Amazon. So it's like the longest prayer and the brachot. Um, and then like Kriyat Shema, and I did it all in Yemenite. Uh, the Birkat Amazon I actually did in uh, Sephardi. I like uh, the Iraqi version of Birkat Amazon. And the Kriyat Shema, I do it the Yemenite way. And Ashrei Yashvedet. What? The Yemenite Shema? You want to hear my Yemenite <laughs> the Shema? The accent? Sure. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Yachod Oh, have to eat Adonai Elohecho Bechol levovecho Bechol nafshecho Bechol meodecho Oh, are you the devourim ha'ela Asher anochi metzawaotcha Hayom al levovecho Vashinnanto levonecho Vadibbarto bom Vashiftecho So Did you put on tefillin the first time after you converted? Tefillin? No, I put on tefillin before I actually, I was at the hospital it was very, very spiritual. It was, uh, I, I told the rabbi about it. I told him, uh, because I was actually at the hospital. It was a few years ago, it was years before I converted. And I had multiple surgeries. Like I had a shoulder surgery, knee, I broke my ribs. I'm, I'm broken. Like my body is just... banged up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, but uh, your soul is complete. My soul is complete. I was involved in a uh, car accident a few uh, years ago. So yeah, I kept training afterwards and then just kept on like overdoing it and overdoing it. And I pushed Push too, hard. T- too hard. It sounds like that's your personality. You push hard and all, on, on everything. Yeah. So I remember uh, the uh, Chabadnik rabbi who came to the uh, hospital and he was just passing through the rooms. And did you put filling today? Did you put filling? So he was asking everyone. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. So it just skip, skip, skip. You know. And then he came to me 
I was like, I don't want to say no to him. Because you kind of wanted to do it. I kind of wanted to do it. That I didn't know I wanted to do it because I wasn't expecting it. And then he came and he helped me because my arm was injured. And then like he put it for me and he put it on my head. And then he gave me the Kriyachma. And then uh, I was just reading it. And it felt so good. And then like after a while, I think a few months, I did it again. But uh, at the shul, I, so I went to the synagogue. And I told the rabbi, uh, because the rabbi knew I was about to convert. He knew that I've been doing this for like a long time, practicing and everything. But he wasn't too interested because he didn't realize I was an Arab. <laughs> he thought. What did he think you were? He thought like I was mixed with something and my mother wasn't Jewish and my father is a Jew and mixed with like some other race. He never really bothered. And then after like. He didn't know that your aunt was married to Arafat. <laughs> yeah, so. nothing. Yeah, secretary. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. And Did then you have he goes, any support in the world? Because your father's not in the picture, your mother's not in the picture. I'm sure your family was not on board with this. Did you have anyone in the world from your old life that said, brother, I love you. If this is your choice, I support you. No, none, none. Absolutely wow. no. But my mother, even though like she wasn't really there for me, she was more there for me uh, just uh, financially, I guess. As a kid growing up, she sent the money whenever it was needed for school, for books, for clothes, you know, through kindergarten all the way to high school. But at the same time, you know, she sent me, you know, I was kind of raised in like a million homes. Uh, well, a million, I'm exaggerating, of course. Right. But like. Now? Uh, she's somewhere not far from here. She doesn't live too far from here. We, we don't have Did a great. Did you call her when you converted? Actually, no. The way people found out I converted to Judaism is funny, because one day I forgot the kippah on my head, and it wasn't this kippah; it was a smaller one. One day I go to Shacharit because I was I would always go to Shacharit, and I wouldn't go to any other prayer. Why? Because Shacharit, uh, the rabbi in this uh, community not too far from here, would start around 4.45. He would start like Hanetz and then jump to Shacharit. And then he would finish Shacharit by 6.30. 6, 6.30, he'll be done. And then I thought, oh, this is great for me because I live in an Arab neighborhood and I don't want them to see me. And then it's perfect to leave at 4.45 in the morning and go to the show. So I would do it almost every single day. And one day I was, uh, I had a day off. I went to the show, came back. I was exhausted. I was just like attacked by exhaustion. I went to sleep. I woke up. I went to the local, uh, to the local uh, grocery store and I just went to pick up uh, some milk. And then uh, when I go there, everyone's just staring at me. And I didn't realize why. Everyone's staring. I'm kind of like sleepy. And I'm just looking like this and taking the milk going home. And then I realized my tzitzit is all over the place. And I have a kippasruga, which is like, you know, exactly. And it was a smaller one. And everyone was That's how there. you came out? <laughs> That's how I came out. And my sister called me sometime after. And she goes, is everything okay? Because like everyone's talking. And I'm like, everyone's talking about what? It's like, they're just asking if you're okay. I'm like, what do you mean? It was like they saw you wearing Danadish. <laughs> she called it Danadish for the tzitziot, which is like, and then she's like, You were wearing a kippah? What? And then ever since, wherever I walked, it doesn't matter where it was, wherever I walked, people would just stop and stare. I want to point out to people that you lived in Israel proper. You wouldn't have managed this had you lived right. in Gaza no. or the West Bank. You wouldn't, right. That's for a sure. different, for sure. That's a different animal. Right. So that's also that's also Menashemayim because you could have been born there as easily as you For were sure. born in Yafo. And at least you had a little space, you know, to 
actually pull this well, off? Well, at one point, uh, they did uh, throw an improvised, well, it's IED means improvised explosive device. So, yeah, so they threw something into my house because I live in like not a very expensive house. It's uh, I inherited it from my father. Uh, it's like a small living unit, which that's the only reason I'm staying here because it's very hard to live in this country or in the center in general. But expensive. when I don't have to, yeah, it's expensive. When when I don't have to worry about rent, but I have to just worry about utilities, bills, and all of that. You're married with a child, right? I'm divorced with a child. I I, I got a divorce when I was uh, 20. I, I got married when I was 17. I asked I had my daughter when I was 19. I asked her if you're single. He he said no. No, um, it's complicated. <laughs> Okay, You're, everything about you is complicated. <laughs> I know, everything is complicated. <laughs> That's why we love you. <laughs> Thank you. But, but I want to get to, I want to get to, I want to go back to really the crux of the issue here because at this point, I think you made it clear that you are a proud Jew and that you are a proud Israeli and that you are on the right side and you can be a very valuable asset in helping us figure this out. I mean, you're a gift in that way. You are a gift because, and that's you why I wanted heart. to talk to you today because I know that there, <laughs> I know there are things that you'll understand that I could never understand. And that is so important here because we want to get to the heart of the matter. We want to potentially resolve the issues, less killing, less war. I mean, who wouldn't be happier if children could just live without the sounds of the sirens and the rockets? And it's just, it's so miserable and unpleasant. But you say that the only way to stop this cycle of bloodshed is to uproot the actual incentive and the goal of the terrorists, and that is to acquire Israel. So if Israel is, makes it very, very clear that the entire state will remain under Israeli control unconditionally, and no matter what the world has to say, it's not up for negotiation, that would send a very strong message and perhaps reduce the the terrorism, because there seems to be some sort of belief that that with enough terrorism, they could accomplish their goals. We cannot give them any wiggle room. You all never accomplish your goals. Never. You can all blow yourselves up. It's never going to happen. And I say that over and over on Twitter. You cannot be wishy-washy. It has to be extremely clear. The Arabs understand force. This is what it is. You don't like it, lump it. Yeah. I don't think, uh, I think they're aware the fact that they will never have a state. I don't think the aim is to have a state. I think it's just to prolong the conflict because they're not interested in a state. If they were interested in a state, they would have had it like long, long time ago, whether it was 47, 48, 63, 67, 93, 94 with the Oslo Accords back then in the 2000s and, you know, with uh, Trump's peace plan. It was a great plan. He wanted to give him an airport. He wanted to give him like an underground tunnel that would stretch from Gaza to the West Bank so they could travel easily. Yeah. Shipping, Shipping ports, ports, factories, yeah. warehouses. Like he had like an actual proper economic plan. And they're like, no, not interested in this. We'd much rather indulge in human sacrifice. They say the Arabs never, yeah, they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Miss an opportunity <laughs> for sure. Never miss a chance to miss oh. a chance. But one second, I want to talk about the Lubavitcher Rebbe a little bit. I don't know if you have ever been to 770, if you've, you don't never know been, a little bit. But I know okay. about him so, a little right. bit. So I grew up in, in Lubavitch, and the Rebbe was a staunch supporter of Israel. He also was very, very clear that Israel should not give away any land, that it was a massive security issue, and it sent, it, and it sent the wrong message. But ultimately, I, I think that the solution is twofold, because 
the Western world doesn't understand that this is not a, a political conflict. This is a spiritual war. And the only way to fight this spiritual war is for the Jewish people to be strong in their faith and to do what needs to be done and for the Arabs to respect them for it. I'm not saying that the Arabs will ever love the, 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 the Jews and the Torah, but when they see secular Jews abandoning the Torah and then the whole, you know, I call it the food coloring parade and, and, and engaging in, in a lifestyle that, that's pagan and it turns them off even more. Do, do you see a difference when the Jews are, or how the Arabs perceive Jews who keep the Torah and who don't keep the mm -hmm. Torah? For sure. I think there's a difference whenever they're actually like um, confronting each other, right? So whenever Arabs and religious Jews see each other, there is some respect that that it, it's very visible actually when I think about it. Because I see it in Nebrak, I work in Nebrak, and there are like a lot of Muslim women who are wearing a hijab and everything, and they work with like religious Haredi men, and it's like a lot of you know, it's just like common ideologies, common sense. Islam and uh, Judaism are practically identical. You know, like it's just Islam is, you know, fabricated version of Judaism, in my opinion. But a lot of the sentiments are shared between both groups. So whenever um, she, whenever I would see a woman approach like a Haredi guy, you, you, could, you could just see it there. You could see that they're like, all right, we speak the same language, even though they don't. It's Arabic and Hebrew. Sometimes they find it hard to communicate. But the code is there. With the secular ones, it's definitely strange for them. It's it's not the same because the, especially in Tel Aviv, you know, the Tel Aviv seculars are just like on a different level. It's a different world here. And they're the ones marching for free Palestine. Right. It's a, it, the, the whole thing is so confusing. Right. It's like we're living in the matrix. It's like my boss. My boss employs Palestinians. I, I work in Nebrak and all of our employees are Palestinians. And my boss is like, a right wing, like a far right wing religious Jew. He's not Haredi. He's, the, he's a regular Jew, not Haredi or anything of the sort. But like he will employ them. Like he's against them having a state. He's like a massive right wing guy. He votes for BB and all that stuff. But like he will hire them. Why? Because it's just, it's, it's different on the social level. And then there's like the actual, whenever they think about security and who's going to lead us to a safer future, that's how they vote. That's how people vote here. And at the same time, it's very important for me to say that, for example, when I would go and cut my hair, I don't do it anymore. I don't go to air barbers, but I used to. They would make fun of everyone. You know, I would see people come in and go and they would just like mock religious ones just as much as they would mock secular ones. So at the same time, a Jew is a Jew uh, to them. So yeah. I think the difference actually, it's just on our side. In other words, if we want to fight this, we have to rile up, I believe we have to rile up the youth of Israel with a love of God, love of Torah. For sure. And, 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 and that will counter the fanaticism of the, of the Arab youth. At the same time, obviously, I'm not saying that, you know, we, we saw footage from from the march and there was one crazy lady screaming, you know, Mavet Laravim and making all kinds of obscene gestures. And I was like, that's who you found. I, I think she did that to me when I was on the bus last week. Clearly, she's not 100 percent normal. I, 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 we don't want to see the Torah used as a weapon, mm -hmm. God forbid. And I just want to explain something that I thought you'd appreciate. A lot of people say, you know, if someone rises up to kill you, rise up to kill right. them first. Well, it, the translation, the, the literal, right, but it's actually, if someone rises up to kill you, rise up and kill them first, not rise up to kill them first, because if you rise mm -hmm. up, 
that is enough. For the most part, if you show that force, if you rise up, you won't actually have to kill them. The rising up will be enough. So rise up and kill them means, okay, obviously if we're dealing with Amalek and if we're dealing with, you know, in the times of the Canaanim and, and uh, all the, the nations that were, you know, Hashem, uh, Hashem told us to completely eradicate the men, women, children, and animals. But if we would rise up and show that force, it, both in spirituality and politically and nationalistically, we wouldn't have to kill first. The rising up is enough. Right. I, this is actually the most difficult part about Judaism that I mentioned earlier. Uh, it's actually the, the Amalek story because I uh, I hosted uh, a Jewish guy from the States. We were talking like this. You know, I, I used to talk to like Jews who are anti-Israel. I wanted to know why. They're mostly young in their 20s. And then I asked this guy, he's like, why? So he's like, the Torah, you know, he has issues with the Torah. And I said, well, what is your issue with the Torah? And he brought up the Amalek story. And I struggled with it because I would speak to rabbis. I would ask them, I was like, okay, so why were we commanded? It's like, we don't know. <laughs> it's like, we don't we don't really know. It's like some things just happened so long ago that we don't know. We don't understand, you know, do we understand? Well, I think we're living, in a, we're living in a modern world where we don't engage in, in bloody warfare if we don't right. have to. I think the the Arabs are stuck in the olden days, and it's unfortunately still their mentality. But for most of the modern world, we're trying to avoid war at all costs. So obviously in the days of the Midbar, and when the Jews were first coming into Eretz Israel, they had no choice. They had to kill all the the nations that were there. But it's hard for me to imagine that being the scenario today. At this point, we're just defending ourselves. This is not offensive. This is just a defensive. Yeah. So I think that makes all the difference. If uh, if Israel got actually if if Israel was more offensive, we would have uh, a proper I don't, don't want to say proper defense, but I, I would say it's just like I don't feel like Israel is doing enough. I feel like it's always holding back. Uh, I feel like uh, they they just go and take care of this one terrorist because they're tipped, and then they're doing this, they're doing that. But we are aware, like we know. I went to Jenin in February. I filmed a short documentary there. I lied to the guy. I told him I'm an Arab Muslim. I didn't tell him anything. I tell him, I tell him like I was Jew and everything, of course. But I went to Janine and basically he was armed, which really, I wasn't expecting that. And he's like, oh, don't panic. We're all armed. I'm like, you're all armed? <laughs> all? <laughs> to the teeth. <laughs> to the teeth. I was like, yeah, we all have guns there. It's not because we have issues with Israel. It's just like, you know, it's, it's part of our mentality. <laughs> the, the Arabs live by their swords. And, exactly. You know, that's, that's apparent with their, their fetishes with, with weapons. Yeah. And we believe in Safra the Saifa, right? We believe we have a sword in one hand and a book in one hand. The sword is to defend us while we're studying and working God. We, we don't believe in what they believe in. There's a beautiful quote by um, Tim Marshall. I don't know if you heard of the author. Uh, he has a book. The name of the book is Prisoners of Geography, 10 Maps That Will Change the World. And I think I have a quote somewhere. I kept. Uh, I always read his stuff. It's actually on my tab here. Uh, the Arab countries are beset by prejudice, indeed hatreds of which the average Westerners know so little that they tend not to believe them, even if they are laid out in print before their eyes. <laughs> I just tweeted that today. I just tweeted that today. Listen what I tweeted today. I wrote, the Palestinians want to kill Jews. We don't have to prove it. It's just the fact of the matter. What's so deeply disturbing is how many supporters they have who are aware of the fact that they want to kill Jews and continue to support them anyways. 
Yeah, and he, I think he also says that we are aware of our own prejudice, which are legion, but often seem to turn a blind eye to those in the Middle East. What, did he, what does he mean by that? I think what he means by that is that like we are aware of what we're doing as people, but then whenever we see it in the Middle East, we're, we're just going to make excuses for them, right? Like, oh, we don't understand the context of the language. Oh, we don't understand what they're saying. So he says like when and someone... And also, what do you expect from them? Like there's this thing like a pity party. Like what do you expect from them? Miskinim, miskinim, what could you do? Like we can't even expect them to live normal lives and not be murderers. Like that's how low the bar is set. Yeah, he says that the role of the mainstream Arab media and like... Refusal to understand that when people are full of hatred say something, they mean it. That that's the Arab. Whenever we see them say Khaybar, Khaybar, Ya Yahud, or just like a couple years ago, I think it was like three years ago, I, I forgot which country it was during like a rally, they were like yelling, rape their daughters, something in like this. It was in England, probably. Right. So it's um it's unfortunate. I, I I'm super impressed by you. You're clearly very authentic. And you have a deep neshama. They say that whoever converts had some sort of Jewish blood and was part of Am Yisrael. At some point in their lineage, you were at Har Sinai. You accepted the Torah like all of us. And we are happy to have you part of our tribe. What does your life look like today as far as your security and safety goes as you become more vocal, a more vocal advocate for Israel? Every advocate for Israel is in danger on, on to some degree. Sometimes I post things and people tell me, don't share a picture of your patio. You don't know who's lurking. So tell me about that. And also, if you could just talk a little bit and we'll wrap it up about your psyche these days. It, all of this is all of this is a lot. Do you sleep well at night? Do you go to therapy? Like, how do you take care of your emotional health? Because it's a lot. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a lot. I don't. Yeah. Yeah, I don't feel safe ever. My house, you know, I don't have any extra protection. Actually, I don't even have a fence or anything. People can just come in whenever. Uh, I feel like I have a shgacha Yona. Uh, my weapon is Hashem. I don't have a gun. Um, I'm not carrying anything. And I don't want to have a gun ever, to be honest. I don't want to carry that. I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a burden that is too heavy to carry. And... I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. Like I just I happen to get by somehow. Like uh, I feel like sometimes like I'm like a miracle child because I'm supposed to die all the time, but I don't. So I tell people like I have this talent for surviving. Cat with nine lives. <laughs> yeah, cat with nine lives. You could say that. Like when I went to Reichman University, I think it was probably the most painful uh, thing I've gone through because you know the lecturers and the people who teach and just in general like. Oh, the Jews who come there, you know, they're like international Jews and they're so progressive. They're young, you know, they're all like 18s, 20s, woke. Uh, they would criticize every single word I say, uh, or they would like try to shut me out or shut me down or shut me up one way or another, shut me somehow. Uh, I even ended up leaving school after paying so much money because I was just tired of it. Like I remember there was this guy, Dr. Yuval Benziman, and it was so unfortunate the way he treated me there. He would say something like he would teach conflict resolution and i would and he would say something like this every side in every conflict wants peace and i'm like no <laughs> i come from this uh place uh, i have I, I happen to know for a fact that that's not true i mean the only conflict that palestinians have among themselves is how many jews should die on the way to peace <laughs> but how could they not listen to you it was more than that they ambushed me several times I don't know. They try to make me sound like a bigot, like an idiot, like an uneducated guy. 
just because you know they don't agree with my uh, opinions and ideas. They have Arab friends. They have some Arab friends uh, in my class or in school in general that identify as Palestinians or they say... You're the black sheep. You're the right. odd one out. You're the one, yeah, right. that there's something wrong with. That's very painful. That is very painful right. because here you are a Jew and it's the Jews that are putting sticks in your wheels. Oh, we had a guy, we had a lecturer, we had an AOC shirt. <laughs> we had... Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I know. I'm not a fan of Rashida Talib. I've yeah. done many episodes no, on her. I've done many, and I laugh because uh, I laugh. I laugh and I cry because we all know that she's not sending one red cent to Palestine, and that she doesn't go to sleep thinking about those children. Everything is just so she can get attention, and she's not. She's not dealing with facts. She's just spinning and spinning and spinning and doing it for attention, and it's very disheartening. Especially like you know, you're saying you're you know these progressive Jews. For me, I feel the same way about America. You're supposed to be supporting Israel. You are an ally. I'm half an American. I was born there. Like to see how much hatred towards Israel is coming from America, I feel the same way you do. Like, you're supposed to be on the same team. Like, what happened to people? But, you know, I'm glad that you have uh, at least people like me that want to share your story. I'll leave you with this. There's the words MS and Sheker, right? So MS is Aleph Mem Taf. Aleph has two legs. Mem has a flat bottom. Taf has two legs. It stands, never falls over. Sheker, you have Shin has a point. Kuf has one leg and Reish has one leg. Sheker always falls over. So you have to just stay true to who you are. The Torah's MS. You have a Jewish soul. Am Yisrael, we're, we're, we're here to make the world a better place, to be a light onto the nations. We want to serve God. Literally, we want peace for everyone around the world. And until that happens, there will be no peace amongst the Jewish people. We will never be content with just a Band-Aid solution. It has to be perfect. And that is the goal. So I appreciate so much that you are actively involved in trying to make that happen on a Ruchniistika level, on a Gashmiistika level, politically, socially, and now on the weekly squeeze level. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, it's very nice to talk to you. It's very nice to, uh, to do this. Uh, I hope I wasn't too bad. <laughs> I've been awake for like no, no, you're hours. terrific. You're terrific. I really appreciate it. We'll, we will do this again. And I encourage everybody listening to send in their feedback and to follow you on Instagram. I'm going to put your social media links and your YouTube channel. Subscribe to Timur's YouTube channel and support this guy because he's the real deal. Thank you so, so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So there you have it, episode 111 of the Weekly Squeeze. Don't forget to check out my show notes for all the links that you need. Leave me a five-star review, and I'll see you on Wednesday.